0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: This week on Democracy Sausage Do Ministerial Codes of Conduct Mean Anything Anymore? The latest Angus Taylor affair, which some have dubbed tailgate, suggests not. The new approach is a bit more Trumpian. Never apologise and never resign. For the Morrison government, the strategy seems to be ride it out and hope for Christmas. Welcome to another rich program on Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny, and with me, as usual, is Dr. Maria Taflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations here at the ANU. As we record this, the nation's federal parliamentary representatives are gathering across the lake for the last sitting week of 2019. And for the government, I guess they'll be hoping like hell that it won't be as bad as the penultimate week. It wasn't so good for them, was it, Maria?
0: No, last week was a bit of a doozy for the government between uh, the impropriety scandals, uh, between failed legislation. It wasn't so good.
1: No, it wasn't. I mean, um, they they had the the, the uh, union-busting bill, the so, so-called Ensuring Integrity Bill, that's its official name, uh, that uh, went down in a very surprised result for the government late in the week. But it had been uh, – and that was a, a real blood nose for Scott Morrison and his team.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I've never really understood why Australian um, politicians in particular are so wary of losing votes. Um, but I guess it's just to do with the way discipline works. And majorities work in this country, but um, yes, this was this was a blow to the government. Governments don't like to lose legislation, even though in this case, you know, it doesn't necessarily bring down the government or anything like that. Uh, but I guess they had assumed that all their ducks were lined up in a row. And yeah, then, well, and I then they weren't. Right.
1: Well, I, I think it challenges the whole notion of government as we as we uh, normally conceive of it. You know, the Party idea that, government. Yeah, you're elected to govern. You have a program. of of things that you intend to do. Admittedly, this wasn't really mentioned much during the election campaign. This is really revived legislation from uh, the previous year but then amended. Uh, But, you know, I think the government was entitled to think it had the numbers for this in the Senate because – it was dealing with uh, One Nation. It had the support of uh, the Centre Alliance, part of the two senators there, and it felt like it had the support of Pauline Hanson's One Nation, her two votes. Because after all, uh, Pauline Hanson had sought to make a number of changes. They had all been agreed by the government, so she'd been given everything that she wanted. She'd voted for those amendments in the uh, in the you know the previous stages of the bill, but then when it came to voting on the final bill. She didn't. And I think you can understand why Matthias Cormann would say that the government was blindsided.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, yeah, they're all absolutely reasonable points and, and Pauline Hansen has – uh, you know, played this very well in terms of her base, and she's sort of made her point to the government and all of those, all of those things. I guess my my point is more of a, a general political scientist point about the fact that we actually have a parliamentary system and that parliament should reign supreme. And I know, I know, I'm I know I'm old fashioned. <laughs> it's just how I feel, people. Um, but um, yeah. So you're right about that. Yeah. No doubt about it
1: yeah and of course it came on the end of a of of a pretty traumatic week for the government where it was struggling with this Angus Taylor affair. I've heard it referred to as tailgate <laughs> <laughs> um I guess that's Taylor Gate, or however you want to describe it. There's been Watergate that he was involved in as well, It's reached of,
0: gate status. Yeah, which, which well, means it's got, got some legs. To, yeah. Yeah, well,
1: that's true, but things get to gate status fairly quickly. It seems it's, to me. It's nowadays. Twitter.
0: It's just speeding up the news cycle.
1: Nonetheless, as uh, as everyone would know, you know, this is the story about how Angus Taylor launched a political attack. He's, he's the emissions reduction minister, and he launched a you know a spirited political attack on the Sydney City Council for its travel bill. And it turned out he had all the numbers wrong. I had to apologize and, and then the prime minister's kind of inveigled himself into the issue really by um uh, by not just standing by Angus Taylor but then by directly you know ringing the the New South Wales police commissioner McFuller to find out the details of a police investigation into who bodged up these figures.
0: That's right. This this is an extraordinary story and I I I think it's time to bring in our guests
1: That's a very good idea because um, one of those is a bit of a specialist when it comes to these kinds of things, ministerial standards and and all of that. That's Dr. Matt Kirby. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations at uh, the ANU. He's a Canadian by birth, interested in the areas of comparative executive and legislative institutions, but particularly how these ministerial standards apply. Um, very topical at the moment. Matt, welcome to Democracy Sausage.
2: Thanks very much, Mark. It's nice now, to be here.
1: Now, it is correct to call you Matt, is it? Because I understand that uh, you you get called other things. I mean, Regularly. Not,
2: not Matthew. There are a lot of Michael Kirby's in the world, and I get mistaken for that quite a bit.
1: And you get called Kirby, I understand. Uh,
2: yeah, that's, that's correct. <laughs> it's... A function of going to a school with a lot of Matthews. Yes. Um, And
1: Michael's. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about uh, this, um, you know, how you see this Angus Taylor affair in terms of, um, you know, the significance of it, because it's pretty clear at one level. I mean, it's obvious that some bad figures have been used, but it's also probably obvious that Angus Taylor, you know, just leaving aside the question of how it's been handled since it's been discovered, it's pretty obvious I would have thought that Angus Taylor didn't do this on purpose because you don't send incorrect figures to someone who is the source of those incorrect figures in your understanding. And accuse them of something, you'd, you know that that's a recipe for them simply saying, "Well, you've got the wrong numbers," which is you know what happened. Uh, so he presumably didn't know that he'd been given the wrong numbers.
2: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. This is kind of like that scene in *This Is Spinal Tap* when they make Stonehenge, but you know they give the dimensions in inches rather than feet, and yeah. now sort of Angus Taylor's uh, you know City of Sydney scandal is in danger of being trampled on by elves or something like that. But. Uh, <laughs> But the um, no, I mean you're absolutely right. I mean even even bad ministers would not be so ridiculous as to send off you know uh, that type of information which can be so easily verified. Let alone that information off to you know um, <clears throat> the Daily Telegraph. Oh, I beg your pardon. The Daily Telegraph. Yeah, little alone – yeah, exactly, yeah. to an organization whose job it is is to actually like look up facts and figures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is uh, – this was probably an overzealous, uh, you know, ministerial aide or staffer or somebody like that who basically said, hey, I've got a great idea and either misinterpreted it themselves or was just being a little too partisan. I think one of the things that comes out of this is that it sort of reinforces one of the things that uh, we know about ministerial responsibility, which is that over time ministers don't resign – for the errors of their underlings. It used to be the case, like, you know, a hundred years ago. Yeah, it did. That's in fact how the Westminster Convention is meant to work. That you are responsible for But isn't it interesting that you know nobody has actually nobody's actually come out and said that he should resign for this, and, and is, is actually serious about the numbers for exactly the reasons that you said, and even if they did, it is unlikely, in my opinion, that the prime minister would insist on the minister's resignation for this point, which uh, is
0: kind of remarkable.
2: Well, it is, it is, uh, but I think that that's not to say that I think Angus Taylor is safe. I mean, I don't think so because what's what Angus Taylor is doing is he's accumulating baggage, and at some point he is going to be a liability. To the prime ministers, so as you pointed out, there's already been Watergate, mm-hmm. there's already been Grassgate, and now maybe we have Taylor Swiftly out of the door gate. I don't know, uh, <laughs> out of the gate gate. Yeah, out of the gate. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But um, and I think what's happening now is that the association uh, that in people's minds of Angus Taylor is not that he is the minister of uh, emissions and the environment, uh, but rather that he is the minister of trouble.
1: Yeah, that's right. Because this was this is an entirely self-generated crisis when you think about it. I mean, uh, the Sydney City Council passes a resolution uh, declaring a climate emergency. This has been done by a number of level levels of government uh, or jurisdictions around the world. Uh, The Sydney City Council does it. uh, I think informs the Environment Minister uh, Susan Lee, Uh, but it's in fact the Emissions Reduction Minister who says, "I got this." Yeah, and he goes back to them with this, you know, this nakedly political attack, alleging that they've spent nearly $16 million on national and international travel, when in fact, they've spent $6,000.
0: But I mean, more importantly, they send it to the Daily Telegraph at the same time as they post it back to the the mayor, Mm -hmm. right, of Sydney. So it's actually in the papers Yeah, the whole thing is a
1: political attack.
0: Exactly. You know, it's a blatant and sort of low rent kind of uh, political attack uh, at a time when you think the- Emissions reduction and energy minister has bigger fish to fry, like, you know, reducing power prices and cleaning up emissions. Yeah, but
2: not only that, but, you know, you've got this crazy situation when, you know, the evidence is right in front of everybody, including everybody who reads the Sydney Morning Herald (laughs) of of him not apologizing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so he took a week to finally come out and say, but, 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 you know, I mean, maybe there, maybe there's been something weird that's been done between the PDF version and the, the word version, like, you know, what type of like Trumpian dystopia do we live in here? Right. (laughs) So, I mean, that, that, that is just fueling it even more because now people are just thinking the guy's whacked.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) So Matt, Matt, I know you've done a lot of work on this. Um, So how many calls for resignation does it sort of typically take on a minister to sort of see them go. like So what are the sort of determinants of, of exit, I suppose?
2: Yeah, I mean, so it, it varies from country to country. But, you know, really what is going to affect the exit of the minister is the extent to which the minister... Threatens the integrity of the cabinet and the government as a whole, or threatens the integrity of the prime minister. The reality is, is that unless you are, you know, sex scandals don't really matter anymore. You have to be, in you have to, unless you're a hypocrite. So we've had an example of that in the recent past here in Australia as well, without having to name names. But uh, so long, so long as you're not being a hypocrite about it, you can basically get away with anything as far as sex is concerned. I, um, I would have thought
1: that's changed, frankly. I mean, you say they don't matter anymore, but I think and. Uh, Understand what you're saying in terms of sort of the uh, general idea of blustering through these things, but I would have thought with the advent of the sort of Me Too thing, there's some
2: maybe you know, maybe in the last in the last year, but we haven't it had it with the exception kind of, of Barnaby scandal. Joyce, we really haven't had anything yeah. to test that. Yeah. Yet, you know, and and for the most part, sex scandals are very very infrequent in uh, in Australia. They, they tend and, to be
0: more affairs rather than harassment. Cases. Yeah, and those
2: are those again are not yeah. you know they're not they're not either. Ministers are discreet enough not to get dragged down by them typically or, or. You know, the press is simply not going to go after something like that because you don't want to be throwing bricks and glass houses. Let's
1: bring in Dr. But Sue Regan here. Um, she's also with us. She's uh, from the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is uh, from where we actually um, uh, make this podcast each week.
0: We are in this cupboard right now. In We're the in School. a
1: Crawford cupboard, as yeah. we see. That's right. Her research interests include policy analysis on housing, pensions, social care, employment, poverty, and disadvantage, and particularly uh, interested in public inquiries, uh, which uh, there are a few going on at the moment, and there's been some pretty important but we before we go to any of those sorts of things do you have any thoughts on this on this Angus Taylor affair in terms of um you know h- how do you read it uh, is it is it uh, registering out there in the electorate do you think
3: yeah i mean i think it is i mean i think it's feeding into a wider discourse about mistrust in politicians yeah. um you know, and really, really sort of feeding that in the, in the community. Um, it's not good for politics, not good for democracy when, you know, cases like this happen. Um, you know, and the events last week, uh, with the Prime Minister calling the New South Wales Police Commissioner indeed add, add mm. to this sense of politics not being done in a, a way which we might hope for in a healthy democracy. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it, it's not a good turn of events. I yeah, think. it's
1: interesting. Labor, I think, was quite slow to kind of pick up on that. I mean, when the prime minister announced something like four times in question time on about Tuesday uh, last week uh, that uh, he was going to, uh, you know, check with the New South Wales police about this police inquiry into the Taylor affair – um there was no real response from the opposition at that stage and then the prime minister went and did that he had made that phone call came back told the house that there was no need to stand his minister aside because he'd ascertained sufficient information from Mick Fuller the New South Wales police commissioner uh, to justify not you know not standing the minister aside during the course of this investigation uh, at that point i think there were a number of commentators uh, who were starting to say hang on that's Pretty iffy, isn't it? I mean, the prime minister ringing the the cops. Um,
3: I, I suspect it was, you know, the kind of inertia on behalf of Labour was partly disbelief. It was a, you know, did did the PM really just say he was going to call mm. the New South Wales? And did Blitz he mean that he was
1: literally going to do yeah. it personally? Because it wouldn't have been exactly. all that out of the ordinary if he'd had the uh, secretary of the department do it, or even perhaps the prime minister's chief of staff do it, just to, as a matter of checking. The facts of the matter, but instead, this was a call between the highest political office in the land and the police commissioner about an, a, a newly commenced police investigation.
0: I think it's extraordinary that the prime minister didn't think that this would be a problem. Like, uh, so I mean, to sort of build on what Sue sort of said, like, yeah, there is some sort of there has been some discussion that. Yeah, Labor didn't actually believe that he literally meant that he would be ringing the guy on his mobile who happened to be his ex-neighbour and he actually had the mobile phone number of the chief of of police in um, New South Wales. The other way to view it is much more cynical, which is, you know, um, everyone is so inculcated to politics and to ministerial standards being sort of so lowered Mm. um, that um, it wasn't until... Um, you know, the journalists started talking about it. That people became exercised about it. Yeah. Um, but I do think it is kind of remarkable that the, that the prime minister was actually surprised at the blowback he received mm. for this action. I mean, because it is just sort of kind of common sense, really basic conflict of interest stuff, and you know, it kind of does go to this fact that we were talking about before about ministerial resignations. The last minister to resign for something that his department did was the environment minister at the very end of the Howard government, whose name I sadly have not cannot remember and he resigned because it was politically he met with Brian Burke remember this mark yeah. he met with Brian Burke and this was a way of trying to put pressure on Kevin Rudd who had also met with Brian Burke i've never seen anyone happier to resign the commission as a minister for the good of the good of the government and it kind of goes to the sort of principle of of you know the westminster system and and propriety when you're sort of supposed to have this sort of chain of delegation between ministers through the parliament through to through to their voters um, that they are that they are not um, resigning when um, you know it's quite clear that things have gone wrong in their department but more importantly like it seems like even misleading Parliament doesn't seem to be enough mm-hmm. to be a, a, a ground for resignation
1: yeah Matt
2: yeah I also think that you know one of the things that this shows and is something that typically happens behind closed doors in prime ministers and cabinets offices and things like is that this is actually rattling the prime minister and his staff, that he would actually do this because Maria, you're absolutely right. You know, in any other business, if, you know, whether it's like at the ANU, if, uh, you know, a parent called one of us about their stu- uh, about their children and asked about their grades, or we decided to bypass, you know, our immediate head of school to go to the dean or anything like that, this would be regarded as just improper. Mm. And you would think that somebody with, you know, political acumen and with a political career, and as you said, you know, who is at the highest echelon. Of the you know as the apex predator of 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 our political world would have greater instincts to know that you know for the last what two thousand five hundred years at least since you know Aristotle certainly wrote about this uh, about you know I mean this is not. What you do? Mm.
1: Well, it's interesting that it comes at the same time as the, in the US they're dealing with this, you know, this question about the uh, Ukrainian uh, president, the call between uh, Trump and Zelensky, and the general charge is that. Uh, you know because there was all this speculation about or conjecture about whether there was a quid pro quo whether there was a specific condition placed on on um you know the provision of this uh, you know military economic aid uh in in exchange for investigating Joe Biden's son and all this sort of carry on the general consensus was well, look the very fact of um talking about the money and talking about investigating Joe Biden in the same in the same sort of frame, uh, you know, you don't need to be any more explicit than that. I would argue the same is the case with the Prime Minister ringing the police commissioner. He doesn't have to say anything inappropriate. The very act of the call... is
0: reminding him of their is, relationship.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, this is the Prime Minister uh, saying, you know, where you're up to on this and uh, what does this amount to? And we know when Mick Fuller spoke a bit later uh, to, the, to the media in a doorstop, he actually... Revealed that he didn't think there was much in this. Now that that presumably was the kind of reassurance, because we've not seen a transcript of this call. That presumably was the kind of reassurance the prime minister was after, and which led to him going back into the House of Representatives later that afternoon and announcing that, having spoken to Fuller, he was not going to be standing his minister aside. I'm interested, Matt, though, in in the, the point a point you were getting at before about um, you know about standards and you know, how these things, how these resignations come about. Do you think that the advent of Trump in particular, that kind of politics, never apologize, bluster through, marginalize your critics, all that sort of stuff, do you think that also is having an effect on politics generally? Because the lesson that we see with Trump is it doesn't matter what he's accused of, what he's found to have done, what lie he's told, what inappropriate act he's engaged in, he simply refuses to take a backward step, and eventually the issue goes away. His his supporters don't seem to mind. He makes every critic a partisan who's 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 motivated by you know a political uh, end, and and therefore is uh, going to be saying those kinds of things. I wonder if politics generally, right across the West, is taking a rather negative lesson from all of this, and that is you don't have to resign pretty much ever.
2: Um, I think possibly we're comparing apples and oranges by looking at Trump versus Australia. So, I mean, one of the things about Trump, of course, is that Trump did this before he was the president of the United States. That is is part of his personality. Mm. The second thing, of course, is that in the presidential system, you have a fixed-term election. So, Trump is thinking, can I just wait this out? And then on top of it, he also knows that his party is very, very dependent on – him and his and his popularity or his ability to carry votes. On top of that, Trump also knows, and the theory of economic voting tells us that if the economy is getting better, he's probably you know all else equal, he's going to get reelected. So he can afford to do this. Uh, what you're talking about in terms of overall populism in the world and you know populist parties coming to power and uh and things like that possibly i'd say it probably has more to do with mediatization i would say it probably has more to do with political branding and the ability to um, the ability to message control more than anything else and what's happened now of course in with social media with 24-hour news cycles with podcasts and things like that that uh Prime ministers are simply using different types of outlets, but leaders and MPs and cabinet ministers are simply using different types of outlets which they can avail of in order to control more of the message. Mm, I, I suppose
1: it's a you know you can have a debate about whether Trump is is driving some of this change or merely a function of of this kind of change. But I've mentioned on this podcast before uh, the example of Mick Young uh, back in the '80s who resigned when uh, his wife carried in in their luggage a Paddington bear. Um, in her luggage wasn't even the minister carrying it, but his wife, and, and th- there hadn't been correct duty paid on this. On this child's toy, yeah. he resigned over it. He stood aside anyway while this matter was investigated. The Can, TV TV and is, and this there was also a colour TV scandal where a minister didn't uh, d- brought in a colour TV. The duty paid on it was for a black and white TV. The colour TV duty was slightly more. We're probably talking about you know that's a couple the 70s, of dollars.
0: That's the late seventies. Yeah, yeah,
1: and uh, and and the minister resigned. So th- th- any any kind of misleading of Parliament or th- anything that went to sort of probity uh, was. Uh, was prima facie grounds for a minister to either stand aside during an inquiry or indeed to resign. Um, Yet here we have in the case of the Taylor affair, uh, okay, the the minister may have the defense of of not having known the figures were wrong, but but there has to be an explanation as to where the figures came from. The prime minister, leaving aside the whole police investigation, the prime minister had already satisfied himself uh, that uh, there was no – Wrongdoing here, yeah. and if there's an answer to it, why don't, why don't they yeah. give it to the uh, to the and voters? There's
3: a, there's a kind of irony, I think, about all of this. That if the, you know, if the recent trail of events uh, had occurred in the private sector, the government would have been outraged, mm. uh, in outrage, and you know, somehow, uh, I I I think there is a, I think your point, Mark, that there has been a kind of a lowering of what we expect of politicians and what is acceptable for ministers to do now um and it, I, you know and that's very worrying there might not be any short term consequences to you know the events that are unfolding at the moment for for the minister or the prime minister but i think it again you know it does feed into this very worrying trend where we should hold politicians to the highest standards mm. you know above the private sector um, yeah.
1: That's why it always worries me when I hear people say things in a kind of a almost like a sort of uber wise way. They say, "Oh, all politicians lie," as if as if that is the standard. We should just simply mm-hmm. accept. Uh, we shouldn't accept that at all. Uh, of course, not as an ongoing uh, way of working. Uh, and once you do, of course, it's pretty hard to to then sort of blow the whistle on someone. And say, "Yeah, well, you should." Resign your commission yeah. because you've been caught in a lot. And of course, all all politicians
3: lie. don't lie. I mean, it, you know, it at least not intentionally. Those, no, and you know, there's, um, you know, having worked with uh, politicians and ministers a lot in my career, most politicians, you know, are do have very high standards, you know, set largely by themselves, not by institutions. And I think it, you know, it muddies uh, politics as a profession when we see this sort of behaviour.
0: Matt, are there sort of trends across the world? that differentiate different out, out different
2: countries? I don't know if it would be so much that they differentiate different countries. But one of the things is simply that ministers typically don't resign. You know, I mean, remember what the Constitutional Convention demands, right? It doesn't demand that the minister.
1: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away.
2: right? And so, Mark, I think your point there about, you know, well, you have to tell us what the hell happened here mm. is what needs to be done. He doesn't yeah. need to necessarily to resign for it. And they if don't I, need a police investigation for that. They, no, they it, don't. It, it, what he I, needs I to do thought... is say, you know what happened here? One of my staffers, either I, mi-, or he might just say, I misread this. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm sorry, I apologized. And honestly, if he does that, it'll probably slide by the wayside. It would have slidden and by the wayside in the a long side, time ago. News cycle. Or if he wants to throw a staffer under the bus, he can throw a staffer under the bus and it will also go away. But that's what He needs to do. I think um, what's what's surprising to me is that this is the area now where people are talking about, like you know, should the minister resign or or what have you. I mean, there were two previous scandals that this individual minister was caught up in, Mm. which are probably much more. um, They're still going, really. Yeah, you know, well, yeah, uh, which which are much more condemning of the minister than the city of Sydney thing that's going on right now. Like, you know, Grassgate, you know, I mean, there's – and this, these, are, you know, these are sort of financial impropriety, uh, conflict of interest scandals that are the types of scandals that ministers end up resigning for.
1: But they're more complicated and a, and a complicated story is, a, is a, an easier one to survive than a simple one, I think. Yeah.
2: And because it gets drawn out as well. So, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, I think the the other thing that I think is important is that the way we talk about these kinds of scandals, if we compare the colour TV affair, right, or the Paddington Bear affair, yeah. with with what's going on today, the the defence that is often trotted out by political actors is, well, you know, Labour's done this too, or the Greens have done this too, or the Liberal Party has done this too. It's this sort of conflating of umpire politics. But when we're talking about ministerial stands, we're talking about the standards for the people that we elect to literally govern us, who should be you know, above the law and should at least in the national interest not be partisan, right? It's actually not good enough to use umpire politics. It's not good enough to say, well, you know, sometimes I'm not very good at my job, so it's okay that you're not very good at your <laughs> job, right? Like standards should be there as a minimum threshold. You should either clear those bars or you shouldn't, you know? And I think that's something that we kind of tend to forget or we allow, um, you know, politicians to kind of get away with. And it's like, it goes back to this point about, well, all politicians lie. Well, well, you know, we put them there. Mm. We should hold them to a better standard.
1: Let's take uh, that up after the break. We'll just have a quick break and come back and take up that issue of umpire politics and some of the precedents that they uh, they are using to justify the uh, their, their handling of the uh, Taylor affair at the moment.
3: Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back. Now, just before the break, Marie, you were talking about umpire politics and uh, that was particularly a reference to you know, some of the arguments trotted out by the Prime Minister in relation to this Taylor affair. One of them was uh, citing a case of Bill Shorten in relation to when he was a a union official uh, before coming into Parliament. Another one was in relation to the Julia Gillard AW slush fund allegations that dated back to the mid-90s. Uh, It seems to me that, as you say, I mean, citing Labor's record in these matters is not a particularly edifying process in itself. Plus, these both related to affairs that occurred or allegations that occurred uh, for these people before they were in Parliament, as distinct from the Taylor affair, which is the minister's discharge of a ministerial function.
0: Yes, in
1: office. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, the and Shorten
1: are... was in opposition then. He wasn't even a minister in relation to uh, uh, where you know when there was a police investigation into the matter.
0: That's right. I mean, you know, there obviously have to be um, higher standards for people who are actually uh, holding ministerial office and are you know basically in charge of enacting and enforcing laws. Uh, you know, these are these are very serious um, positions, and I mean. Also, it's sort of a highway to hell kind of situation because, well, Labor could just retort with all of the scandals during the Howard government. Mm. And then, you know, they could retort with the sports rorts affair from the early 90s with Ros Kelly. Like, I mean, it's actually beside the point and it's a distraction um, because what is actually kind of important is that, you know, the prime minister has his own ministerial standards. You can actually go and look for them on a website. This is the Ministerial
1: right? Code of Conduct. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, his code. Uh, are, are these Ministerial Codes of Conduct worth anything? Because it seems to me that they're almost blueprints for, I mean, in terms of the way they they are always navigated around, uh, or invariably, um, you know, they're not as watertight as they look.
3: Oh, I, I mean, the, the Ministerial Codes serve a very important purpose. Um, but, you know, what... I've been a a ministerial advisor in the past in the UK, not here in Australia. But, um, you know, I think almost more important than the ministerial codes is a is an understanding of what is acceptable as a minister, Uh, you know, what the norms are. Hmm. um, And those norms change over time, Um, you know, and I think. Uh, here in Australia at the moment, and indeed in the in the UK, it feels like the the norms have shifted, so that behaviour that in the past we would have thought of as as unacceptable is now kind of acceptable.
1: Yeah, but it, it, it's sort of based on a kind of a political assessment. So in a way, they provide the prime minister with the necessary grounds on which to require a minister to resign. But, a, but entirely separate from that has come before the, you know before you get to that point has come a political judgment: is it more costly to hang on to this minister given whatever the circumstances of the scandal are, um, or is it more cost uh, you know uh, more costly to get rid of them? Sometimes, often it's the case that having a minister resign is a political crisis in itself, right? So they resist that for as long as possible, but at some point an issue might. Be so damaging to the government that you have to tie it off. You have to require that resignation, and then the ministerial code of conduct provides the prime minister with the cover to do so. Correct?
3: It does, yeah. But often, also, I mean, you know, it can well be the case that uh, that you know a minister is complying with the code of conduct, you know, by the letter of the 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 law, um, but yet uh, it's still you know a very sound political judgment to uh, encourage. That Minister to resign,
0: I mean, I guess what it sort of shows is that political considerations have displaced the sort of norms that used to exist around parliamentary conduct and behaviour. I mean, so you know in the in, in the nineteenth century in, in the uk, like misleading the house was was truly a diabolical thing. you would You would just resign. You know, and that would be seen as right and proper. If you recall, Tony Abbott, um, he was a bit slippery with the truth um, on Late Line. I think around the Pauline Hanson, um, his involvement with um, seeing Pauline Hanson jailed for electoral fraud, and um, he was very slippery with the truth on Late Line, and he was eventually caught out in that uh, slipperiness. And he replied, "Well, it's one thing to mislead the ABC, but another thing entirely to mislead the Parliament." Um, you you know, John Howard introduced his ministerial code of conduct because he was doing what oppositions always do, which is to say we'll, we'll raise standards, right? We're going we're to have an, a,
1: a sort of a, a regime that is trustworthy and honest exactly. and probity is going to be at its center.
0: Exactly. And and so he lost a lot of ministers in his first term of of government and he and they they all resigned, right? Because he was, you know, inform, enforcing his ministerial code of conduct until it in it impinged um, Peter Reith, whose son had like misused the his government like Credit, uh, sorry, uh, government
1: credit card. Yeah. yeah,
0: credit card to pay like hundreds, hundreds, like a lot, thousands of dollars in mobile phone costs. Like I think a hundred thousand, and it was then that Howard drew the line, right? About you know, and that's that, and
1: that's that issue about political cost. I mean, the precisely. cumulative cost of losing all those ministers exactly. and maintaining that that standard of ministerial exactly. behaviour exactly. according to the black letter was just politically becoming too damaging for John Howard.
0: Yeah, and we've sort of seen a norm shift and it's probably to do with the types of um, actors that are entering politics now and the sort of kind of, I guess, discourse around what we sort of expect, you know, and that's why this sort of, well, um, this umpire politics, well, the, the other side is terrible and this side is terrible so therefore we must be okay, is really corrosive and we should always be rejecting it. When it comes to standards, we should be thinking about them as thresholds and that's it. Yeah, that's my
3: strong view on the matter.
2: Hear, hear. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing to also keep in mind is that uh, it's it's just as much a indictment of the prime minister as it is of the minister. There's only one person who appoints ministers and there's only one person who sacks them. And one of the reasons why prime ministers don't like to sack ministers is because it says, well, why did you invite this particular person to join your cabinet in the first place? And – Prime Ministers are very conscious of that, you know, because then suddenly they start getting flack from their backbenches. Then they start getting more flack from the opposition. And one of the things about calls for resignations and resignations themselves is you have to think of a call for resignation kind of like um, like being uh, in a ship that's sinking and uh, you've jumped into the water and there's a bunch of sharks in the water and the sharks are going around and they're bumping against people to see whether or not they bleed or not. And if they bump against a piece of Plastic or garbage, then, you know, okay, it's not food. And that's kind of like a call for resignation. But then if they bump against somebody and they're bleeding. And it's like, oh, food. And then they all come in. And one of the things that happens with calls for resignations and these resignation incidents is that as soon as the prime minister or the cabinet, and this is like the whole basis of collective cabinet ministerial responsibility. So like you know, you circle the wagons and everything else. As soon as there's any type of tacit admission that, you know, the pr- that the minister may have actually done something wrong, then, you know, the opposition is going to have a feeding frenzy, right? And the media is going to have a feeding frenzy. They love resignations. These are like, you know, these are party days for uh, for for opposition parties when it's when they a think scalp. that they can, yeah, when yeah, when they, when really they can success. bring down a cabinet minister. Not only that, a cabinet minister who was like you know a pretty boy who you know went to all the right schools, who was a Rhodes scholar, Tatted who was a management consultant, who made oodles of money, who then was recruited, who got in on a constituency that was originally with the Nationals, and and but you know he's still a farming good old boy and everything else, and to bring this guy down. <laughs> Then, oh my God! You know, I mean, this would be absolutely fantastic. And I think that prime ministers are very aware that you know what—you give an inch, and you threaten all sorts of things. And sometimes, you know, I mean, you have very short parliamentary cycles here. It's better just to wait out the clock. And I think that's one of the things that's happening here. We're about to yeah. go into Christmas. Yeah. You know what? Everybody, just shut up. Yeah. You know. Well, there's and, there's
1: there's talk in in on, on Capitol Hill that uh, ministers and members of the uh, the, the parliamentary Liberal Party are quite happy that the prime minister has stood by Angus Taylor because it's sort of sent out this statement that the prime minister stands by his ministers. The prime Unlike minister also perhaps,
2: stands by himself. Well, I that's probably true. Yeah.
1: Um, one of the things you, you find, of course, and you'd know this, Sue, having been in the game, that um, a, minister, a prime minister who sacks a minister has made an enemy of that minister, Oh, yeah. particularly if that minister believes that there just wasn't grounds for that dismissal. Yeah.
3: And they don't go away. No, you know, and there's no. lots of examples of that in Australia. Of, uh, you know, even you know, um, the the saga we had last week with Malcolm Turnbull coming out and saying that Scott Morrison's decision to uh, call a New South Wales police commissioner was—I can't remember his exact words—but uh, uh, unfortunate, or unfortunate, yeah. or you know, and he wouldn't have done it. It's
1: a call um, he would not have made. He said, "Look, I'm sure right, it might yeah. have been innocuous. That's right, but yeah. it's not a call I would yeah. have made." Yeah. yeah.
3: But your wider point, yeah, I mean, you know, they don't go away and, uh particularly in this era of, you know, communicative plenty with all, uh, you know, social media. It's a nice uh, way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not, that's not my abundance, term, but uh, abundance, yeah. You know, that it's very easy as a exiled uh, minister or policy, politician to still have a very loud voice.
1: I do like Matt's uh, point about the... Um you know the, the timing as well in terms of you know how long since a person's been appointed. I think there was a, a, a sketch. I remember a sketch in the thick of it where uh, the minister—I can't remember what minister she is—but she's going to to uh, Number Ten to be dressed down for some mistake, and it's made quite clear to her that she's not going to be sacked because in the first six months to sack a minister is 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 to admit that you selected the wrong person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your fault. Uh, Six, exactly. you know, two years down the track, it might be uh, the other way around.
2: Yeah. But I would also keep in mind that you know you want to take a close look at the polls and see what's happening with that, because uh, up until what about maybe three or four weeks ago, um, you know, the coalition was considerably higher than Labor in the polls, and in the last what, two weeks or so, there's been a slide. And so I think that if that slide continues down, uh, one of the things that prime ministers do like to do, particularly during Christmas breaks and things like that, is say, we're going to have a routine shuffle. Hmm. Exactly, yeah. and and one of the things one of our one of our colleagues at the uh, at the uh, at the School of Politics and International Relations, he did some work a couple of years ago on British ministers, and uh, discovered that there are actually incidents where, if you do sack a minister, you do see a corresponding change in public opinion because the public actually thinks that even if the minister did nothing wrong or did something right, uh, this is a sign of the government taking action. And one of the things they were able to demonstrate was that. If there was a drop in the polls and the minister hadn't done anything wrong, and none of the ministers had done anything wrong, it's still a good idea to have a shuffle because then the public is going to perceive that you're doing something about it, and you would see actually, in the event of nothing wrong, you would still see a corresponding change in direction of public opinion. So I think if we see uh, if we see attitudes towards you know the horse race polls of who you're going to vote for in the next election, if those are if those continue to go down over the over the christmas break and into the new year i wouldn't be surprised to see a reshuffle and i think that one of the first people who would be reshuffled would probably be angus taylor
1: well that's the word i hear from uh, from coalition people is that there's a lot of unhappiness about angus taylor mainly because and not only, uh, you know, you've listed out the, um, the sort of scandals he's been involved in and brought, you know, opprobrium on the government, but, but because he's so punchy, because he's so political himself and uh, such a political attack dog that people like that, you know, who, um, who really lead with their chin, I mean, occasionally they get knocked out.
0: Well, I mean, I guess if you're going to to be that kind of player in the government, then you you need to be quite finessed, right? To make sure that you're always able to sort of duck and weave yeah. out of this. And I guess that's sort of the point around Angus Taylor. Like, you know, in this case, someone it's alleged in his office or some somehow they have been given a piece of information that has been. You know, quite possibly doctored. Like, that's quite a serious allegation, um, which has brought down, you know, other people in the past. Um, And then there's also the probity stuff around what has happened uh, with Grassgate, which is also, um, you know, of serious um, concern. But what is kind of interesting politically about this is that, you know, Labor has been sort of, I guess, trying to run. A set of lines uh, about this government that they sort of have one rule for themselves and another rule for everyone else. So this sort of goes to robo-debt but also just um, to the sort of overall uh, sort of probity of of the prime minister themselves, right? And I mean in many ways like it won't really make that much of a difference today but it's sort of about – uh, water on a stone, mm. right? They're trying to build a picture of this is the type of government that, that we have here, um, and this sort of plays into into Labor's hand.
1: Yeah. Now, you mentioned robo-debt. That, that was a, another event that's been bubbling for the last few weeks, and there was a court case uh, last week in which it was found that the whole mechanism for income averaging was wrong, that it reversed the onus of proof. Uh, sue so that's um that's been a, a pretty big reversal for the government. It's having to back away from this robo debt uh, mechanism
3: it it has and um I mean there's still a, so many questions unanswered in relation to robo debt um i mean there's a there's a question about how long the government and the the department knew that it was unlawful um because it you know the chances are it was well before the judgment came out last week um you know i I teach public policy here at the Crawford School now, and I think the the example of robo debt is going to be a case study that is used uh, throughout public policy schools in Australia as uh, both a you know a bad policy, but also a really bad policy process as well. You know, and I yeah. think
1: uh, it's the you know, onus of proof thing is really really quite concerning, isn't it? And it's it's good to see that a court has said, well, you know, that's actually one of the problems right at the heart of it because essentially what you've got is a situation where they use an algorithm to average someone's income. They say you've earned this much over this period. You've been paid this much in welfare, and therefore you need to pay back some of that. You have to prove that that's not the case. So the, the onus of proof is suddenly put on you to prove that it's not the case.
3: It is, and, uh, yeah, and it's uh, um,
1: which is quite difficult in many cases. It's very
3: difficult, you know, particularly you know, given the groups of people that were you know, are being adversely affected by robo-debt. So people who might be in casualized work or... Um, unemployed, disabled, unemployed, you know. And and, pension. Um, uh, so having to provide evidence, often going back many years, mm. uh, that they, you know, were earning a particular amount of money in that particular period, it's extremely difficult. And, you know, I think there's something... I mean, I think it's actually morally wrong to put the onus of proof on welfare recipients. Uh, I think it should be up to the government to provide the evidence. And, you know, and now that, um, I mean, that is what is now happening. You know, I mean, the government have now said that they will not, you know, will not only rely on income averaging, that there will have to be other evidence before that they, before they suggest that there is a, a debt owed. Well,
0: that, that was what was really interesting about the the legal decision, right? They basically sort of said that it was unlawful for the government to only provide partial points of proof that you had defrauded them, for example, and now owed them money, and and that it was particularly so given that Centrelink already has. Um, powers like quite powerful ones actually to compel information from banks um, and from employers um, which makes it easier to sort of surface this information in the first place which is actually much more difficult for a citizen like it costs a lot of money to ask for bank statements right from seven years ago whereas the government can just be like bank give me the statements yeah yeah
1: yeah. Now look, we're getting uh, long on time here, but I do want to just um, take a moment to talk about the British election because uh, that's um, you know going along at full pace and uh, in full bitterness mode. It seems, Sue. Uh, any thoughts about uh, how that's uh, how that's proceeding? Well, yes. I mean, there's,
3: yeah. There's I mean, the most recent polling. Uh, so three out of the four uh, election surveys that came out today show. That Labour is narrowing the gap with the Conservatives. And, you know, and one, the, the BMG, uh, poll showed a reduction from 13 points to six points lead for the Conservatives, which really does put the UK in a hung parliament position. Um, oh, know, joy. Oh, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, would be desperate times, really, if there's a hung parliament. Uh, I mean, it would mean – Well, it would mean that the the Brexit –
1: it would mean the Brexit election doesn't resolve Brexit.
3: Exactly. It would all – everything would be thrown up in the air again. Which has
1: always been the problem with having an election instead of a second referendum. If you were going to break the impasse, as distasteful as it is to uh, those people who say that there was already a referendum and that was that, but – you know, there's been gridlock ever since and the idea that the election was going to resolve it. Look, it may still do so uh, because the polls are notoriously wrong these days and they're quite hard to pick in, in the UK in particular because of the first past the post system. I mean, you can have, you can do very, very well in a, in a whole range of seats and come second and still have a, you know, significant improvement in your vote. Um, it's very hard to know how many of those constituencies are going to tip in the end and whether Brexit's going to be. You know the 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 issue that decides those things, but um, as you say, at the moment the evidence seems to be pointing to something that's not going to resolve that right. question. And if
3: there is a hung parliament, then Johnson will have to work with the minority parties and and ultimately <laughs> the DUP, yeah, the DUP, Once again. and um. <laughs> You know, and ultimately there will be, probably be a second referendum. I mean, there, you're absolutely right, Mark. There's a big if here, you know, and I still think the likely, most likely scenario is that Johnson will get his majority. But, um, but these polls, you know, are, are heading the wrong direction for him. Um, and it would be, you know, just I think in some ways the worst outcome if we end up with a hung parliament and a second referendum.
1: I was staggered when I saw um, as we record this, which is in the aftermath of that appalling lone wolf terrorist attack in London where uh, at least two people have been killed, stabbed uh, and the uh, the jihadi um, you know uh, terrorist guy uh, has um, – uh, it turns out was uh, you know in jail, but he was released early, and so this has started a whole debate about the early release of people committed of terrorist offences, uh, convicted of terrorist offences. Uh, but it's but you know right in the shadow of that attack is it's it's unleashed a you know a, a full throated political war between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, blaming each other for uh, for this situation. It's really quite extraordinary. know mm.
3: uh, yeah, I think it says a lot about where British politics is at at the moment I don't think that would have been the case a decade ago no Um, but it's yeah it's it's shocking but it really you know I think anyone who observes British politics has seen how it is you know how bitterly it it really is yeah
1: yeah um Thank you very much for joining us, Sue Regan and Matt Kirby. And, of course, uh, Maria, thank you again for uh, another episode of Democracy Sausage. Uh, we'll be back with you again next week. If you want to contact us, you can do so at, uh, on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. And you can also email us at podcast at policyforum.net. So until next week when we no doubt uh, will know a bit more about what did happen in that final week of parliament and, uh, and, and we all look forward to uh, getting away from politics uh, through, through the summer. Um, it's Mark Kenny signing off from Democracy Sausage. Bye. <music>